If we haven't met, I'm Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here. We like to walk through books of the Bible at FFC, and we're currently walking through Philemon. Today, we're covering verses 8 through 16. And uh, let me be honest with you. I don't have time to play around. We've got a lot to cover. So let's get to work here. There's three movements in the text. We have a runaway slave, a redeemed slave, and a forever slave. After all of that in application, there are four sticky questions that arise from the text that I will answer. So the guts of this book open up in West Turkey, Western T Turkey in the city of Colossae. You have this massive estate owned by Philemon. It's Saturday night. His wife, Aphia, is preparing the house for the worship service in the morning. She's cleaning, putting out the extra chairs. She's used to this setup and breakdown. Most church planters are. And it's been the life of their little church plant. She's also pre preparing food for after the service and preparing for the other families who will bring their dishes. Philemon and Aphia's adult son, Archippus, is putting on the finishing touches on his manuscript. He's preparing to exposit the text before his sheep, before this house church. And there's a heaviness sitting in that home. One of their employees, who is a steward of the family finances, stole a stack of cash and some other items, and he bolted earlier that week. Actually, it wasn't an employee. It was a slave. Philemon had more than a few slaves. He treated them well. He didn't beat them. He didn't assault them. He was a different kind of master, but he was a master. As difficult as that is for us to hear, this slave was his property. The slave's name was Onesimus. They called him O for short. He's near the same age as their adult son, Archippus, whom they like to call Archie. Archie and O grew up together. They lived in the same house, but they didn't stay in the same room. There were rooms for sons, and then there were quarters for slaves. Onesimus is now on the run. He's on the run from the law, from his master, and from God. Apparently, he's doing more than running. He's also swimming. He travels 1,180 miles over land and sea from Colossae to Rome. And he makes the trip with eyes in the back of his head. He knows there are slave catchers everywhere, like modern-day bounty hunters. If caught, they would brand him. Burn in his forehead, F-U-G. F-U-G for Latin, fugitivus, which is where we get our English word, fugitive. Because he ran, he committed a crime, and he's subject to a, a variety of disciplinary actions, like flogging or even execution. Once in Rome, he seeks to disappear among the crowds, which wouldn't be hard considering the city housed 800,000 people. This first century Las Vegas provided all he looked for. Women of the night, parties, drinking, feasting. But just like the prodigal son, this prodigal slave soon ran out of cash. He's no longer a high roller. He's now the lowest of the low, a dropout, a washout, the dregs of society. He's surviving among the Roman underworld sleeping in back alleys. Perhaps while in the alley, he meets a woman. Not the 
the ones he had been entertaining previously, but a quiet, gentle, godly woman. A woman that is soul conscious. They begin a conversation. Soul, said Onesimus, I care nothing about that, but my body would thank you for something to eat. I am starving. She replies, come with me. She gave him bread and then she says, I do this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He rolls his eyes as he stuffs the buttered roll into his mouth. His face is hard. I want you to meet a man, she says. I want you to hear him speak. Oh, says, will he tell me what I want to hear? She replies, no, but he will tell you what you need to hear. His curiosity is piqued. He, he has nothing to lose, so he says, okay, bring him to my alley. Well, he, he can't come here. Why? It's out of his radius. What do you mean? He's under house arrest. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. This guy is worse off than I am. Whatever, I'll, I'll just pack my things and let's go meet him. She brings him to a, a rented house, more like a rented closet, small space, damp, dark, but filled with joy. She walks O in and says, I want you to meet the Apostle Paul. There was something about Paul that immediately drew O in and knit the two hearts together. Maybe it was that O was once a slave and now Paul is a slave of Rome. Maybe it was that O was a prisoner of his addictions and Paul is a prisoner to his chains. See, first century prisoners relied on friends for their sustenance. The state didn't feed them. Paul didn't have cable TV or free dentistry. So, O stayed. Stayed around to minister to Paul, cook for him, talk to him, learn from him. While cooking and learning, God began to chase after this runaway slave. O discovered that he could run from his earthly master, but he could not escape his heavenly master. After hearing the gospel over and over, O dropped to his knees, repented of his sins, and put his faith in the resurrected Christ. He banked his eternity in the empty tomb. We don't know exactly how it all happened, but it happened. The runaway slave became a redeemed slave. His face was changed. The entire man renewed for the grace of God can turn a lion into a lamb and raven into a dove. God knows how to bring the one who needs to hear the gospel to the one who is eager to share the gospel. Some people planted, some watered, but God gave the increase. After a few days, Onesimus says, I've got to tell you something, Paul. Paul responds, go ahead. I never gave you the specifics about my past, but I came from a small little town called Colossae. I know that town. I've never been there, but I want to visit one day. Well, I, I have a master there. His name is Philemon. And when I left, I left in a hurry. Truth is, I robbed him blind. And you know as well as I do, if people find out, I'll be killed. Onesimus, I know the city 
and I know Philemon. I led Philemon to Christ in Ephesus years ago. He's married to a Phil, right? Yes. And his adult, his adult son, Archippus, is now the pastor of the house church, isn't he? Yes. Archie and I, we, we grew up together. Paul, is this crazy chance? No. This is providence. Nothing sneaks up on God. Nothing is left to chance. There are no accidents or coincidences with God. You ran seeking freedom and God brought you ultimate freedom. He controlled your footsteps. You didn't know it. You didn't recognize it. But in your ordinary choices, even in your sinful choices, God was bringing you to himself. Paul went away for an hour and then he came back with a sealed scroll in his hand. He gave it to O. He said, I want you to go back. I want you to go back to your master Philemon and give him this letter. It's the right thing to do. Now that you're converted, oh, Christ will take you back home. Your conversion will propel you to do what is right. You, you see pictured behind me, the Beatty. The Beatty is the lead pastor of Anacostia River Church in Washington, D.C. Um, solid church, theologically very much like ours. I listened to him preach this passage this week, and he unpacked how, how Onesimus responded to Paul, and then he unpacked how he would have responded if Paul gave him the letter. And I thought it was clever, so i just give you this quote from him. He said, if Paul handed me this letter, I'd be like, I ain't going back, bro. There's got to be a post office around here or something. I'm not going back. You feel the sentiment. I'm free, Paul. I'm not going back into slavery. They talk for a while. The gospel evidently does some work. And he agrees. Without knowing the content of the letter, he travels once again 1,180 miles, this time from Rome to Colossae. He didn't need to steal money to make the trip this time. Paul spotted him. We can picture Onesimus on a Sunday afternoon. Church finished an hour ago. With a rolled up scroll in his sweaty hands knocking on the front door of his estranged master. Philemon opens the door and his mouth drops. What do you have to say for yourself, Onesimus? O drops his head and only hands him the letter. With one eye on Onesimus and one eye on the letter, Philemon begins to read. He knows that the first word of all ancient letters gives the name of the sender, so he begins to read. First word, Paul. He looks up. Onesimus, Paul was the one that led me to Christ. How do you know Paul? Aphia, come on out here. We've got a letter from Paul. She's in the house drying her hands, making her way out. She's excited to read a letter from Paul. Suddenly she sees Onesimus. What are you doing here? Where's my fine china set? Philemon continues reading. Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ. Philemon looks up again. Is Paul in jail again? 
This dude is always in prison. He goes back to reading verse 8. Though I am bold enough in, in Christ to command you to do what is required. Oh, he, he's about to ask me a favor. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. He looks at his wife, Aphia. This is unusual for Paul. He's not flexing his apostolic muscle. He could apostolically jam me up. He's an apostle, you know. Apostles are granted special authority from God to give specific acquaint, specific commands. What, whatever he wants me to do, Afia, it looks like he, he doesn't want to force me to do it. He wants me to decide what to do and do it myself. He's shepherding my heart. Philemon keeps reading, I, Paul, an old man. Afia interrupts the reading. How old is Paul now? Well, when he led us to Christ, he was 58, 59, so maybe 65, 66. He's an OG now. He's not a young pup anymore. Afia says more. Did you notice the play on words, Philemon? Your name means loving one, and he's appealing to you on the basis of love. It's like he's saying he wants you to live up to your name. Live up to your reputation. Then Philemon says, well, here's the ask. Verse 10. I appeal to you for my child. Paul led someone to Christ. He led someone to Christ in prison. He always calls him his child. Paul led someone to Christ. I wonder who it was, Aphia. Next word. Onesimus. The bomb is dropped. Note that there were no silent readings in the ancient world. Everyone read out loud. It's common for us to read in silence now. That would have been totally foreign to the first century. And it's a powerful scene to picture Philemon reading the letter aloud in Onesimus' presence. Imagine as he read verse 11. Formerly he was useless to you, but now indeed... Useful to you and to me. Aphia again interrupts the reading. Paul's doing another play on words. He's doing another play on words. Onesimus means useful. He wasn't useful to us. He was a lazy slave, a thieving, a thieving slave. And he's saying he wasn't Onesimus to you before, but now he is Onesimus to you now. Continues reading. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Philemon ponders verse 12. Wow. Paul's feelings run deep for this fugitive. He loves him. He continues reading verse 13. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on my behalf. Philemon looks at his wife. Sounds like Paul is cutting off his right hand to send O back to us. This is also the third time that Paul has alluded to his imprisonment. That's a great reminder to us, Sophia, that a commitment to the gospel will often bring suffering and difficulty. He continues reading, for perhaps this is why he was parted from you for a while. Philemon, a little frustrated. Parted from me? He ran away with my money and our china set. I wonder if, if O told Paul the whole story. 
Let me just jump ahead in this letter. Verse 18. If he has wronged you at all, he owes you or owes you anything. Charge that to my, well, I guess he did tell Paul the whole story. Mephia slaps him on the back of the head. Don't skip. Go back to verse 15. Verse 15. Parted from you a while that you might have him back forever. Afia, this whole scenario has the coincidence of a, of a Dickens novel. But it wasn't chance. God is overruling everything. It, it reminds me of the sermon we heard from our son this morning. When Joseph's brother sold him into slavery, he could have become bitter. But what they intended for evil, God intended for good. God overruled O's evil to produce Good. Now we know why this happened to Fia. God wanted the soul of O. And he needed to get O to Rome. In order to redeem it. So we will accept O back. Without punishment. He will go back to the same slave quarters. To the same slave duties. He is our slave again. Philemon keeps reading. Picks up at the end of verse 15. Have him back forever. No longer a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Honey, Paul wants us to receive Obek no longer a slave. He's dissolving, dissolving the, the slave-master relationship and erects in its, in its place a brother-brother relationship. He doesn't want me to restore O to where he was, but better than he was. Afia responds, this will upset the whole social order and equal. This is unheard of. Philemon says, yes. Paul says his status has already changed. He's asking me simply to acknowledge this reality. He's no longer my slave. He's now my brother and we serve the same master. He's my brother not only in the Lord but... Remember in the reading? In the flesh. And it seems to me that this appeal is not meant to be gradual, Aphia, but that it should be granted immediately. Aphia, read verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Aphia, would you put Paul in the slave quarters? No. Well, then you can't put Oh, in the slave quarters. And it's an um, amazing picture. Picture Afia taking O up to the guest room, to the sun room. Is there anything you would like for dinner, O? He can't believe what happened. He says, well, I never thought I'd say this, but... You know, I heard about your lamb stew. I'd love to have some of that. Onesimus is no longer a slave. He's a son. You can't be a son and a slave at the same time. Onesimus now receives the holy kiss that 1 Thessalonians 5.26 speaks about. He receives it from Philemon and he eats at his side at the Lord's table. It's interesting to think about what happened to Onesimus after all of this. And some extra biblical writings, so they're not inspired, but they're credible. 
Uh, Ignatius, a, a few decades later, addresses the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And this pastor was an elderly bishop, and they called the pastor O. Onesimus. Could it be the same O? Scholars say that it would have been a very uncommon name among people in leadership positions. It was a, it was a slave name. It's the same O. In Ephesus, Paul preached for two years. He planted a church. He led Philemon, Aphia, Archippus to Christ. Onesimus is now pastoring that church plant. I mean, my mind is just rocked by all the providence. See, there's, there's three movements in the text. A runaway slave, a redeemed slave, and then finally a forever slave. And I'm going to say something that's risky. It's biblical, so I'm not afraid of saying it, but it's risky because I have to unpack a word and repack that word with a different meaning because you only have a negative, negative category for that word. The word is slave. The Greek word for slave is doulos. It's mentioned 127 times in the New Testament. The KJV only translates it slave one time. The other 126 times it translates it servant. Why? Because the word means servant? No. There are five or six other words for servant in the Greek. Translators ignore that. They do it because there's a stigma with the word slave. And that's why out of the 127 times in the KJV, 126 of them are translated servant. And should be translated, slave. Translators in all versions are really playing fast and loose with the word doulos. And I think they should stop it. We lose something in our hesitancy to use the word slave. We are slaves of God. It is foundational for understanding the gospel. I love to watch basketball, always have, played basketball, started, let me just go back through memory lane, started on my high school basketball team, each time I talk about it, the older I get, the better I was, and uh, I love to watch the NBA, the NBA no longer calls the team owners owners, did you know that, there is no owner of the Lakers, there's a governor of the Lakers, Michael Jordan, the greatest basketball player to uh, ever live, actually went to the greatest college in the United States, North Carolina. Uh, he, he's not the owner of the Charlotte Bobcats. He is the governor of the Charlotte Bobcats. People hate the word owner, so they changed it to governor. And I'm, I'm not arguing the word for our culture. I could honestly could care less about that. However, I will argue for the word biblically. Jesus isn't a governor. He's a master. He's an owner. And you don't call yourself a master unless you have a slave. Jesus says, I'm a master. And I have slaves. Not popular, is it? The thought behind changing the word servant is that it's not as offensive to our culture. It's not a stumbling block for people coming to Christ. It doesn't sound so Stone Age. Well, my contention is, what if God uses the word doulos on purpose? 
as a large obstacle in order to get to Christ. If you come to me, you have to come to me as slave. Well, I'm not going to be a slave. Then you can't come to me. I'm trying to show you that there's an evil slavery. And then there's a righteous slavery. You say, I don't have a category for that. It's okay, I'm, I'm here to give you one. Matthew 22, 8 says, The master said to his slaves, The wedding feast is ready. Let's talk about heaven. Matthew 25, 21, His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your governor, master. 1 Corinthians 7, 22. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. Verse 22. You were bought with a price. You just heard the same words and he will hold me fast. You were bought with a... That's slave language. 1 Peter 2, 16. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover up for evil. But living as slaves of God. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his slaves that the things that must soon take place, he made, known, he made it known by singing, sending an angel to his slave, John. J-Max says being a slave of Christ may be the best way to describe a Christian. We are owned and controlled by God. Complete and constant availability and obedience is expected. Sub Subject to an alien will, an outside will, God's will. All disciplines and rewards come from the master. Remember that slaves, when they were captured, would have um, letters on their forehead. F-U-G, fugitivus, fugitive. Revelation 7.3 says, We have sealed the slaves of our God on their foreheads. God brands us. Mine, redeemed, purchased, saved, rescued. Revelation 19.2 speaks about how God will avenge the blood of his slaves. In heaven, we're still going to be slaves. You will never stop being slaves. If you're a follower of Christ, you are a forever slave. You say, I want the teaching that says we're going to be kings and queens. It's there. But are you neglecting the clear teaching that says you will also be slaves? How does God teach us, um, treat his slaves? Well, Galatians 4, 7 says he calls his slaves sons. He, he treats his slaves like sons. He puts you in the son room. See, with God, it's possible at the same time to be a son and a slave. That's the exposition. But there are four sticky questions that come up in Philemon. I want to answer them. The first one's rather long, so do not allow that to scare you. The other three are shorter. The first question is this. Does the Bible condemn slavery? Some of you, you just winced at the word slave and master for the past 25 minutes. You hear the word slave in light of your own historical context. And I almost guarantee you pictured Philemon as a white man and Onesimus as a 
African-American. That wasn't the case. They looked exactly alike. And they were not white or black. They were brown skin, dark skin, dark eyes, dark hair. When you think of slaves, you think of the deplorable wickedness that you see in the movie 12 Years a Slave. But there's a vast difference between slaves in that movie and slaves in Paul's letters. And you need to allow for a complexity in the word. And I'm hoping to helpfully complicate that to you. And the best way I know to do it is to give you all a gift. And it's a chart. Let's compare Roman slavery with the deplorable slavery that um, plagued our nation, U.S. slavery. So Roman slavery was in the first century, and that's Greco-Roman slavery. It's not the same type of slavery practice in the antebellum, the America's antebellum era. Uh, Tim Keller and Don Carson have an ex excellent article on this, um, and I'm leaning, I'm leaning on this article as well throughout this application point. Uh, notice one first slavery was in the first century, the other was in the 19th century. Uh, who were the slaves in, in the U.S.? They were kidnapped Africans, all dark skin. They were lifelong slaves. It was race-based slavery, ethnocentric. How did that differ from the slavery in our text? Well, the slaves in our text, there were three groups. Uh, first, it was those who were in debt bondaged. There was no such thing as bankruptcy in ancient times, and so they became indentured slaves, sold themselves to pay off the debt. And they were not lifelong slaves. They were free when the debt was paid off. The second group were those who were desired voluntary bondage. They could not provide for themselves, so they sold themselves into slavery so they could eat, and some of them rose to prominence quite quickly. Some of them were, were salt miners, now, their life expectancy was very short. Some of them were trusted and respected household slaves who helped run businesses and raise children. Many of these slaves were doctors, professors, administrators, civil servants, musicians, teachers, artists, librarians, and accountants. We struggle because we don't have a category for that. Some of these had the equivalent of a distinguished PhD. In short, almost all the jobs in the Greco-Roman Empire could be and were filled by slaves. In Paul's day, slavery had virtually eclipsed free labor. And the, this part of the slave population, the second one, was closer to our modern, modern system of employment than slavery that was once practiced in the United States. See, we don't have a category for slaves that could own slaves, but when you're in the second category here, the slaves owned other slaves. And they were fully educated and, and they owned property and could even leave property to their children. The third group was those in military bondage. When the Romans conquered a city or a country, their POWs could be slaughtered or they could become slaves. So those are the three groups of slaves in the first century. And estimates vary, but the slave population in the Roman Empire was enormous. One-third of the population were slaves. And slaves were not a specific ethnicity, not a specific skin color. Slaves were from all races in all groups. Let's talk about the freedoms that um, 
each one had. U.S. slavery, what freedoms did they have? Nothing. It's horrible. Nothing to speak of. What about in the first century? Uh, many were allowed to marry. Some masters and slaves were best friends. The Roman Senate in AD 20 granted slaves accused of crimes the right to a trial. And, and here's, here's what you, even with ancient slavery, here's what you have. You have this one group that tries to make all ancient slavery sound horrible. And then you have the other group that tries to make all ancient slavery sound like it was just employment. And both are too simplistic. Let's just look at those groups. Like group one, there was mixed. So you had some that lived normal lives. They were paid the going wage. They were, once their job was finished and then they were free, they would only be slaves for 10 years. But then there were others in group one who were beaten and abused, similar to what we experienced in the United States, and it, it was horrible. Group two, uh, legal freedom was by no means a positive move for them. Uh, personal freedom was, was not esteemed as highly back then as it is to us in, in the modern West. Likely Philemon was either, um, um, Onesimus was either in group one or, or group two. Group three was very harsh, brutal, horrible treatment. And, and some of you here, you come to this letter and honestly, you like, you like the storytelling aspect of it, but you're really disturbed because you're wondering why Paul isn't picketing against slavery in the book. And you think, since he's not picketing against slavery, the Apostle Paul supports slavery. And some of you aren't Christians, and, and you assume that because the Bible, in your mind, endorses slavery, that if it's wrong on slavery, it's going to be wrong on other areas. And I agree with you. I just do not agree that the Bible ever endorses slavery. And then you clap back at me and say, Kyle, this, isn't why, this is why I'm not a Christian. Okay, I've studied this out. I know Ephesians 6, 5 says, slaves, obey your earthly masters. Colossians 3.22 says, Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. 1 Peter 2.18 says, Slaves, be subject to your masters. Don't tell me the Bible doesn't teach and support and endorse slavery. See, I say the New Testament does not approve of slavery. But it does recognize it. In the complex social environment of the ancient Roman Empire, slavery was not going to be abolished anytime soon. It was a reality that people lived with, so there's instruction on how do you live in this horrible environment. So allow me to make my case. First, consider culture. African-American scholar Thomas Sowell was born in the Promised Land. You know where that is, North Carolina. He served as a Marine during the uh, Korean War, and he has a book, Race and Culture. Excellent. He points out that every major world culture until the modern period, without exception, has had slavery. No one in ancient times could conceive of an economic labor structure without it. I was listening to N.T. Wright this week, and he gave a terrible illustration. It's so terrible that, that it sticks, but it shows you the mindset of, of this culture. He says, telling someone in the Roman Empire to stop using slaves would be like telling them, would be like telling us to stop using cars. Here's what he means by that. He's, not, he's respecting the Imago Dei. He's not saying s slaves and cars are the same. He's pointing out how scandalous it would be for us to continue our economic structure without vehicles. 
So consider culture. Secondly, consider scripture. Exodus 21.16 says, and, and I quote, Whoever steals a man and sells him, or anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. That verse itself condemns the whole slavery in the 19th century U.S. That verse alone. Nowhere does the New Testament provide theological support or justification for slavery. And to be clear, slavery in any sense, any sense, even, even the Roman slavery where I said it's like employment, slavery in any sense perverts God's created intention for human beings. Thirdly, consider Paul. For in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 21, he exhorted slaves to seek liberty when they could. You say, why didn't Paul command owners like Philemon to release slaves right away? Well, I'd say with Philemon he did. But why, why didn't he command it? Tim Keller points out that Paul's letters do not aim at abolishing slavery, but rather aim to transform the ancient institution from the inside. Scholar F.F. F. Bruce says, what Paul's letters do... What Paul's letters do is to bring us into the atmosphere in which the institution of slavery could only wilt and die. And, and here's what I'd say to you if you're a non-Christian and then this is your main issue. Only within Christianity did the idea eventually arise that slavery was an abominable institution to be abolished. Why? Largely because of the implications of the gospel laid out by the author Paul. You ask Philemon, what changed you? Legislation didn't change him. Reasoning didn't change him. A new economic structure didn't change him. He'll tell you what changed him. God changed him from the inside out. And that change proved fatal to slavery. Christianity gave the world that slavery was wrong. And rather than issuing a political manifesto, God planted seeds that undid the current order. Fourthly, consider progressive revelation. Progressive revelation simply means that God did not reveal his will and character to humanity all at once. But gradually, over a long period of time. Thus, you have to look at the entire narrative of biblical revelation to interpret it fairly. Rather than just pull a verse or two here. Interpreting the Bible rightly is, for the most part, not a difficult process if we keep a few principles in mind. And among the most important is this, that God doesn't automatically endorse a practice just because it is described and regulated in his word. For example, scripture regulates divorce, but divorce is clearly not ideal for marriage as the Lord designed it. God gave divorce laws to protect the innocent spouses. Fifthly, consider those who stopped slavery in the U.S. It's, it's worth asking the question, Sol, the theologian that I mentioned earlier, he, he poses this question, how did slavery in the U.S. stop? And he points out that the driving impetus for the abolition of slavery was evangelicals in England. Christians rammed abolition through parliament in the beginning of the 19th century and then eventually used British gunboats to stop slave trade across the Atlantic. Uh, the, the, the horrible, terrible European slave trade trafficked 11 million Africans. But twice that many were bought and sold in the Arabian Peninsula during the same time period. And you have this enormous amount of guilt literature coming out of the West, but nothing out of Arabia. Why? 
What stopped slavery? His answer is undeniably the great awakening. The preaching of men like John Wesley and the reforms of Christian statesman William Wilberforce. The gospel plants seeds that ultimately undid the broken systems of that world from within. So in short, the Bible is against slavery. Sticky question number two. Not quite as long. How could Philemon, and by implication, all Christians, be so blind to sin? And you might be thinking, like, Kyle, this is week number two for me. Last week, you built this guy Philemon up like he's a picture-perfect follower of Christ, and yet he owns slaves. And honestly, reconciling Philemon's godly character with his slave ownership is not easy. In the New Testament, the Jerusalem temple owned slaves. The high priest owned slaves. Remember when they were arresting Christ and somebody got their ear chopped off? It was a slave of the high priest. All of the rich and almost all of the middle class owned slaves. One scholar pointed out something that, that uh, I was unaware of. That in the days of, in our days of slavery and segregation, um, many conservative reform Christians did not speak out against slavery. It seemed to escape their notice. Men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. In their writings, you'll read the most theologically solid description of God's love, his adoption of sinners, their evangelistic fervor, and it just sets your affections on Christ. And all the while, outside of their window was a slave to which they were just blind. George Whitfield respected the Imago Dei and founded an orphanage. And then spit on the Imago Dei by leaving slaves in his will to the orphanage. Later, many of these men jumped on board against slavery. So I want you to see that. But not until after the Quakers and Anabaptists revolted against it, which at that time were like the, the fringe group of Christianity. And you ask the question, Kyle, how can Christians be so blind? Well, we are fallible men and women. And we tend to be blind to the things that do not affect us. And here's a good question around your lunch table today. 100 years from now, what will people be shocked by that we are blind to? I mean, come on, Whitfield. Come on, Jonathan Edwards. How did you miss that? See, we think we are more ethically advanced than the apostles and more ethically advanced than Edwards and Whitfield. But they'll be writing about us in a hundred years. How are they so blind to this? What could that be? I think abortion could be one. Lots of Christians are voting for abortion. I think they're going to be writing books later talking about how Christians supported the murder of babies. And justified it saying, well, they're not, you know, they're not, they're not really humans yet. So I'm not saying it's easy. I think it's very difficult to, to read after someone who supported so blind to sin. She, she can get there. The Beatty, um, the pastor I mentioned earlier in the Washington, D.C. area, I heard him preach this text and I wrote this comment down because it was so interesting to hear. He said Philemon was a 
good man. You had a massive blind spot. When you are where the gospel is preached, it brings responsibility upon you. You say, what does that responsibility look like, Kyle? First, keep the gospel clear. We aim for hearts. Let's not get distracted. Aim for the heart. Secondly, speak out against slavery because it is a gospel issue. The people, people say all the time, like, um, you know, no problem with speaking out against abortion. That's a gospel issue. But don't speak out against racism because it's not a gospel issue. It, and, and I know those words are just, you know, loaded with me. Those are gospel issues. Speaking out against slavery is a gospel issue. There are more slaves right now in the world than any other time in history. But we're blind to it. Hundreds of thousands are basically in concentration camps in China. Speak out against it. Advocate for human trafficking in the States. It's going on in your backyard. IJM has an advocate handbook in slavery, Tennessee. They deal with prevention and aftercare. Clarksville is a hub for human trafficking. Don't create a market for slavery. This is for men and women. Don't create a market for slavery. If you really want to do something to stop human trafficking, then stop looking at pornography. You're perpetuating the problem of modern day slavery and failing to live a holy life. You're, you're creating a market for it. Question number three. Practically, what does this passage mean for me? Well, practically, you, you need to be reconciled to those that you have wronged and maybe those that have wronged you, depending on the, on, on the case. Charles Spurgeon said, and I quote, I always like to see a resolve to make restitution of former wrongs in people who profess to be converted. If they have taken any money wrongfully, they ought to repay it. And it would be well if they returned it sevenfold. If we have in any way robbed or wronged another, I think the first instinct of grace in the heart will suggest compensation in all of the ways within our power. Do not think you can ignore it by saying, God has forgiven me, therefore I may leave it. No, dear friend. But in as much as God has forgiven you, try to undo all the wrong and prove the sincerity of your repentance by doing so. End quote. Real practical here. If there's anything in your house that isn't yours, uh, return it this week. Man, go in your garage, that rake that has been there for 15 years, you haven't given it back to your neighbor. Today's a good day to make restitution. Give it back. See, this is true of, this is what true Christianity is. It affects the whole of life. You have a desire to make restitution for the wrongs. Roland Hill probably not a name super familiar to you, but he created the modern postal service. Roland Hill used to say that he would not give a half penny for a man's Christianity if his dog and his cat were not better off after he was converted. There's a lot of weight in that remark. Everything in the house is better when, the, when grace oils the wheels. Last question, and this is it. Will I be able to run from God? Let's go back to thinking about the book of Philemon here. What was he doing? Well, Onesimus was running from God. And some of you have a child who is running from God. And they're in all types of sin while they're doing it. You cannot chase them around the world, but 
God can. Did she travel to Hong Kong? God has a Paul in Hong Kong. Paul is in Dubai. So maybe your son has to first get to Dubai in order to be penetrated by this gospel. There was a Christian mother praying for her wild, reckless, godless, Christless sailor son. She wasn't aware, but he contracted yellow fever and was in the hospital in Havana. On the bedside beside him was a dying man. And before he died, he said to the runaway son, he said, mate, I want to speak with you. I have something that is very precious to me here. I was a wild fellow, but reading this packet of sermons has brought me to the Savior. And I am dying with good hope and grace. Now, when I am dead and gone, will you take these sermons and read them? And may God bless them to you. And will you write a letter to the man that preached and printed these sermons and tell him that God blessed them to my conversion and I hope he will bless them to your conversion. The man died on the hospital bed. That young runaway sailor began reading those printed sermons. And that runaway boy was converted by reading those sermons. Later, he wrote the author, the expositor. And as Charles Haddon Spurgeon read this letter... He read these words. God found me in Havana. You don't know, dear mother. You do not know what God is doing with your little fugitive. Some of you hearing my voices, you, you are that fugitive. You are the Onesimus. You are the sailor. You are the person that's running from God. And you randomly chose to visit today. You're supposed to have something else to do, but it canceled last minute and then you happened to meet someone and they invited you to this church and it's just totally random that you're here. No. It's not random. My dear friend, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall have immediate pardon for all of your sins and you shall be saved. The Lord has brought you here in his infinite wisdom for you to hear that. Repent of your sins, become a slave of Christ, and be altogether changed. And when you leave today, write your father. Say, Dad, I, I ran. I ran to Clarksville. I ran to Oak Grove. I ran to Hobtown. I ran to the army, but God chased me. He put a lady in my life here and a preacher in my life here and dad, I thought it was all random, all sinful. But God found me today. I was a runaway slave in my sin. Now I am redeemed and I'm from this day forward a forever slave of Christ. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.